Well, what a difference one word makes. Speaking of the passage that we're going to read from today, the great preacher Charles Spurgeon described this passage and this word we're going to talk about as, if we can put up on the screen, he says it's an ocean of meaning in a drop of language. This ocean full of meaning just contained in a tiny drop of language. I married my wife almost 23 years ago. Woohoo! We were high school sweethearts who went to homecoming in October of 1994 because the people that we both wanted to go with already had dates. <laughs> so we just went for fun. And look what happened. Be careful who you go to dances with. And then our relationship grew. And later, when I first told Callie that I loved her, granted it was a little early on, but when I first spoke those words, we were at the door of my parents' house ending the night, and I finally just couldn't contain myself, and I looked her in the eye and I said, Callie, I love you. And she looked at me and smiled and said, thanks. <laughs> she closed the door and went home. And literally, I walked around my house for the next hour muttering, thanks? Thanks? Granted, it was early on. But we made it through, we survived a long-distance college relationship, and then the summer before we graduated from college, I asked for her hand in marriage. So that night was the night I took her out to dinner at the Olive Garden. <laughs> Classy. And then I took her out and we drove to her parents' property, 36 acres in the middle of nowhere in southwest Washington, and we rode four-wheelers up this hill to a part of the hill that overlooked the lights of Portland and Vancouver, and I got down on one knee and I said, will you marry me? And she didn't say thanks. <laughs> you know what she said? Yes. She said yes. One word, yes. And as I look back over 23 years of marriage, do you know how much meaning is rolled into that one yes? Countless implications, ramifications, changes, impacts, joys, pains, problems, tears, heartache, rolled into that Yes, and we have been forever altered. I'm still now exhausting the full meaning of that word. And I imagine, God willing, that we have more years to come, I will still be exhausting the ocean of meaning that was found in that one yes. What a difference a word makes. But today I'm not here to tell you about my marriage proposal or my relationship saga. That's not the ocean of meaning in the drop of language that we're here for this morning. Today's Easter. Friday was Good Friday. Uh, many of you joined us at Harbor and we did that together. It was interesting to walk through that with Harbor Church 
uh, one person said to me, like, I like the mic drop at the end when you just kind of walked off <laughs> and left it hanging there in the darkness. I'm like, yeah, that's Good Friday. And then there's Holy Saturday and the silence of the grave. But today's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. And this morning, what I want to share with you is one of Jesus' last recorded words on the cross. The last seven weeks, we've been looking at the seven recorded statements of Jesus from the cross. We've got one more to kind of bring this to culmination. In our English language, it's actually three words. In the original language of Jesus' day, it's one written word. It's a single drop of language that contains an endless ocean of meaning for you and for me and for Olympia and for the world. It's the best news. It's the gospel. So let me take you back to the cross. Let me take you back to Golgotha. Let me take you back to that skull-shaped hill some 2,000 years ago. And let me tell you what Jesus said from the cross. John, one of his disciples, recorded it for us. This is John chapter 19, verse 28-30. through It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, he said, To fulfill the scripture, I thirst. We talked about that before. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What a difference a word makes. So this is the end of the crucifixion scene. This is the culmination of what is one of the most brutal 24-hour periods a human being has ever known. Though he was completely innocent, Jesus lived his entire 30-some-year life without sin, in perfect obedience to his Father. Jesus then was betrayed by one of his close friends. And he was handed over to the authorities. He was falsely accused by the Jewish religious leaders. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was mocked, scorned, stripped, had his clothes gambled for, and from all accounts, for six plus hours, he was nailed to the tree. The other gospel writers say it's about 9 a.m. They nailed him to the tree. Around noon, the darkness fell across the land. About three o'clock is when Jesus gave up his spirit to the Father. But before he died, as John tells us, he bowed his head before he gave up his spirit. Did you catch that word? Jesus said, it is finished. Jesus didn't say, I'm finished. I'm done for. Jesus said, it is finished. The Greek there, tetelestai. It is finished. Again, three words in the English, one word in the Greek. I love how some other writers and scholars talk about this word, uh, Fleming Rutledge. She says, the English is ambiguous, but the Greek is not. It does not mean it's over, this is the end, I'm done for. It means it is completed. It is perfected. The Latin says it splendidly, consummatum. At the precise moment when he seemed to be defeated, he's actually the conqueror, which is that hymn, the, the cry we've been hearing before us, Christus Victor, he's the victor. He seemed to be the loser. He seemed to be defeated. And he was doing exactly what the Father planned. Another writer says, It is finished is not a death.
of someone dying, it was not a victory. That's why we heard the victory cry today. Jesus is not just giving up, giving in. He's not throwing in the towel. It's not a death gurgle. It's finished. I'm done. These are the words that spill from the lips and the mouth of someone who has finished and completed his goal. It's like, what is the goal? Well, it is finished then. What is it if it is finished? So in a few moments, I just want to share a couple thoughts. And in some ways, I'm like, that's really hard to do. An ocean of meaning in a drop of language. Like, I, I could talk for hours about what is finished. And they've got a whole Bible here that tells the story of what was being done. But I know we've got a few moments left. Let me share three things. Three things in the grand rescue plan of God that were finished on the cross 2,000 years ago with profound implication for you and for me. First of all, it is finished. The, the system of sacrifice for sin has ended. So as soon as humanity chose independence from God through sin, if you read the Old Testament story, as soon as that happens, blood is shed. Blood seems to be constantly shed to cover sin. This is the entire Old Testament storyline. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They eat what is forbidden. They take the bait, questioning God and questioning God's word. And they decide that they know better for themselves. And they say, rather than whatever God said, I'm going to do my own way. It's independence, self-love. And before they're removed from the garden, an animal is slain and the skin of the animal is used to cover their nakedness. So right from the beginning of the story, when sin begins to happen, something dies to deal with the mess that we've made. In the book of Exodus, when God's people were slaves in the land of Egypt and God was delivering them from Pharaoh in deliverance and judgment, the tenth plague, the death of the firstborn son, it, it led to this process where the Hebrew people were, were told to kill a lamb and to apply the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of the house. That the angel of death would pass over because of the blood that was shed. Then comes the entire sacrificial system as time goes on and history unfolds, whether in tabernacle phase or temple phase, you have priests that are dedicated and you read fun books like Leviticus and you see all sorts of sacrifices being made all the time to cover the sin of a disobedient people and their worship as a nation revolved around the sacrifice of sheep and goats and lambs some for intentional sin some for unintentional sin there was the sin offering the peace offering the burnt offering a guilt offering and without getting into all the nitty-gritty details of what was killed and what the blood was done it was more like a, a butcher shop than a pristine, clean worship service that we're used to. It was a bloody mess. The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, was the one day when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies and offer sacrifice on behalf of the guilt of the nation. So week after week and year after year, substitutes were offered and blood was shed and sacrifices were made. But because of consistent sin and the need for it, those sacrifices weren't sufficient and sin continued and sacrifices were expected. The author of Hebrews talks about it this way. 
It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have a consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It was impossible for the blood of those animals to forever take away their sins. All it was doing was biding time and pointing forward to the time when God would once for all take away the sin of the world. So here comes Jesus, the perfect one, the sinless one, the one that John the Baptist calls the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world And when Jesus is nailed to the cross and he dies this death, these words ring true. It is finished. The sacrificial system is finished. No more animals have to die. No more blood has to be shed. No more temporary coverings, patchworking it together. Maybe this is key for you to hear today. There is nothing any human being can do to make yourself more lovely, holy, or approachable to God. There's no good thing you can do, no bad thing that can be avoided, no ritual, no system, no act of devotion, no completion of your character. Nothing can make you worthy. Nothing can make you lovable and acceptable in the sight of God because Jesus has now said, it is finished. It is nothing that is demanded of you. Rather, God freely offered himself. The system of sacrifice for sin is finished. But also, secondly, the, the, the separation of sin is over. One thing was abundantly clear in Jewish theology. It was that when sin happens, it separates you from God. Again, it happened in the garden. Adam and Eve choose to go their own way, and they were removed from the garden. The, the Jewish people live with this constant reminder every time they went to the temple every time they went to the tabernacle. Because the way the temple was laid out and organized, it was a collection of courtyards. First, there's the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles could go there, but only Jews could go further. Then it was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the court of the priests, the holy place, and then deep inside that, the holy of holies, where only the high priest could go once a year. The temple was this place where heaven and earth overlapped. But you have this clear reminder that there's a certain place that I can go, but I can't go any further. And there's something that is separating me from experiencing the fullness of the presence of God. But Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the great high priest, the only fully obedient human being, the Lamb of God, is killed and slain. And he yells out, it is finished, the system is over, and the separation is done. And I believe it is absolutely not a coincidence that while Jesus is doing this on the cross, John doesn't tell us, but Mark does. Mark 15, 37, as this happens, as Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Top to bottom. Many scholars believe that the, 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 the veil was about four inches thick, so this is not a shower curtain. This is not cellophane. The veil between the Holy of Holies is torn. 
And with the death of Jesus, with the blood of Jesus, with the cry of Jesus, the veil is torn, signifying that the relational separation between God and humanity has been dealt with. Other biblical writers talk about this. Hebrews 10, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. We were once far off. We were once separated. And now it says draw near. There's been a new and living way. In the book of Ephesians, Paul says, Ephesians 2, but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Brought near. You were far off. You were outside the veil. The separation of sin now has been dealt with. So also then is the debt of death. The debt of death is paid. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And this word tetelestai has a variety of meanings, though there have been some documents that showed it also was used at times in the ancient world as an accounting term, so that when your bill was paid, they would stamp on the top of the bill, tetelestai, paid in full. Colossians 2, verse 13, says, In you who were dead in your trespasses, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And as Jesus takes that breath and he, fi he, he fires out his final words and he shouts, it is finished, he is declaring that the record of debt that you owe, the record of debt that I owe, the record of debt that we owe has been paid in full. Not wanting to get too political or partisan here on Easter Sunday, but one of the big conversations that's happening uh, back in Washington, D.C. at the national level is this discussion about whether the president should forgive student loans. Have you heard of this? Should, should those that have student debt, student loan debt, should it be wiped out and forgiven at a certain level? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have a student loan. And I'm not going to ask you if you think it should be wiped out or not. But here's the conversation I've heard with a few people. That the people who tend to be most in favor of the forgiveness of student loan debt are those that have student loans. And the people that I have heard that are most opposed to the canceling of student loan debt are those who paid it off already. And they're like, what? I paid off all this money and now you're just going to wipe it away? So again, I'm not telling you to pick a side on this one at all. But here's what I'm telling you. The debt of sin. It's not like student loan debt where some chose to take it off and some could pay it. We all are in the debt of sin. We all are in need of forgiveness. And Jesus says, regardless of who you are, where you come from, your bloodlines, your background, your family heritage, your ethnic heritage, your gender, whatever, whatever way you want to slice and dice humanity, we all stand in need of this. And Jesus has paid it through his blood. And I'm grateful.
through his shed blood, the record of debt has been canceled. Like There's this ocean of meaning in a drop of language. It is finished. What's finished? Oh, there's so much that's been finished, my friends. I could go on and on, right? It is finished means that the system of sacrifice has ended. It is finished means that the separation of sin is over. It is finished means that the debt of death is paid. It is finished means that the power of sin is actually broken. It is finished means that the rule of the devil is over. 1 John 3.8 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And the Son of God appeared. And through the cross and the resurrection, he has destroyed the works of the devil. Or Colossians 2.15, the rest of the verse we read before, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The longtime enemy of God has been crushed, defeated, overthrown, disarmed, defanged, conquered, and subjected. The promises of God from the garden to crush the serpent's head have been fulfilled to send an offspring of woman to fulfill the great promises to Abraham. All the hopes and dreams, all the obstacles that stood in the way are finished and done. Guilt wiped away. Shame dealt with. Since I quoted from Spurgeon in the beginning, he goes on and says, an ocean of meaning in a drop of language, a mere drop. It would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever can be spoken to explain this one word. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high. I cannot attain to. It is deep. I cannot fathom it. It is finished. It is the most charming note in all of Calvary's music. The fire has passed upon the land. He has borne the whole of the wrath that was due to his people. This is the royal dish of the feast of love. It's the royal dish of the feast of love. You can't earn your way to God. Rather, God came down. You can't bridge the separation of sin, but God has torn the veil. You can't wash out the guilty stain. You can't outrun the debt of death. You can't earn your way, work your way, make your way, but he did. And Jesus says it's finished. Nothing that you could do could ever make God love you more. Nothing you could say could make you love God less or make God love you less. You can't add to it or take it away. It's the finished work of Jesus. But it is finished is something that you accept. It's not something that you do. Your part is to believe and receive, to repent and believe, and to receive it by faith. What a difference a word makes. This ocean of meaning in a drop of language. But before I end, because this is an Easter sermon and not just a Good Friday sermon, before I finish, this is all Good Friday stuff. And Saturday happened, and then Sunday morning happened. Here's what you need to know. Easter reminds us that it is finished, but it's not over. So it's finished, it's complete. The, the system, the sacrifices, the separation of sin, the power of sin, guilt, shame dealt with. It is finished, it is done. You can't add to it, you can't take away from it. You're asked to confess and believe and receive. But it's not over yet. The story's not over yet. We're in the story. 
And God has made us, the church, the not over. And we get a part to play. Because Jesus finished the work, but he didn't stay dead. And on that third day, early in the morning, those women, the faithful women, they came to the tomb, and they came in love and devotion, but they expected to find a dead body. They expected to find a corpse, but the corpse they didn't find. And they expected to find a stone, but the stone was rolled away. And they expected to be by themselves, but an angel showed up, and the angel told them good news, that he has risen And they're like, what? He's not here. He is risen. Just like he said. Jesus was vindicated, raised to life. But still, for the disciples, for the women, for the church, for us, it is finished, but it's not over. We are living in this same story too. Fleming Rutledge says, the cross is the foundation of a new world in which evil, sin, and death shall have no dominion. And that world has come crashing into our world. And now we're trying to figure out what does this now mean for this work to be finished, but it not over yet. There's life to live. Here's the interesting thing. You read the Gospels as they encounter the risen Jesus, there's a lot of disorientation. They don't know what's going on. You find them weeping. You find them scratching their heads, asking questions, doubting, confused, like a lot of us. The good news is the invitation to come and make sense of what resurrection life begins to mean here and now. Because the story's not over yet. That's what we're going to do for the next several weeks as a church community. Easter season is more than just one day. It's finished. Yes, it's finished, but it's not over. We're going to take a look these next probably six, seven weeks at those people who encounter the resurrected Jesus. What does resurrection look like for them? What does resurrection look like for you? What does the finished work of Jesus look like when it shows up in your home? in your neighborhood, in your family. Because of Easter, we dare to hope again. Because of Easter, we get to believe again. We get to put our trust that God is making all things new, that there is beauty that rises from ashes, that there is healing that begins to come out of pain. And I know there's a lot of pain even in the room this morning. That there's hope and life and new things to come. Because the with God life is now possible with sin dealt with in us. An ocean of meaning and a drop of language. Jesus declares over you and me today, it's finished. And we get to live the rest of our lives exploring what in the world does that mean? Maybe for you today, you haven't yet put your faith and trust in Jesus. I pray you would hear Jesus' invitation to you to trust and believe in him, to confess your sin to him, to receive new life from him. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a long, long time, and you've tasted the tears 
and you've known the confusion. And you trust that the work is finished and that he's not done yet. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We praise you as our resurrected king, as the one who has dealt with Satan's sin and death. And we're grateful for a chance again this Easter morning to celebrate the finished work of the cross. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you have died to set us free. Thank you that you've removed every barrier for us to experience life with Father, Son, and Spirit. May we continue to swim in the ocean of your love. May we continue to explore resurrection hope breaking into Olympia, breaking into Reality Church, breaking into the lives of everyone here, young and old. May we be confident in your love. May we stand firm in your grace. May we have eyes of wonder to discover the fullness and the richness of all that you have. May we turn from our sin and willingly, joyfully run after you in faith. Lord Jesus, may even this morning, in the midst of a crazy couple years, May we taste the sweetness of your good news. May we celebrate with hope all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.